All right. Hello, and welcome back to a joint episode of Real Seekers and Faith Unaltered. Uh, I'm joined here by my two co-hosts, uh, Tyler Fowler and David Russell. Hey, guys. Welcome to the show. What's up, Dale? Awesome. Awesome. What's up, buddy? Yeah, doing great. Uh, I'm really excited for today's episode. It's something that I've had in mind to do for a while now, ever since I, I started doing my uh, Shroud Wars episodes. And Obviously, um, we've had Hugh Ferry, who's uh, no stranger to the show. So in the first place, hey, hey, Hugh, welcome back. Awesome. And, um, he's always been in the role of, uh, in the Shroud debates at least, in the role of the skeptic. So, you know, obviously, Hugh is a Bible-believing Catholic and a, and a Christian. So I kind of wanted to turn the tables. Let's have him in the pro-affirmative position on the evident historical case for the resurrection. Now is sort of the impetus for today's debate. And, well, obviously, who's going to play, play the skeptic? Well, this is where we have uh, atheist Ben Watkins. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. How are you? I'm very well. I'm really excited. I, I respect your work. You, you know, you're someone that puts a lot of time and research into your position. So I think this is going to be a great debate there. So, yeah, just before we get into today's debate on the resurrection, I want to turn it straight to you, Ben. This is your first time on, at least on Real Seekers. Um, do you want to just introduce the audience as to who you are and maybe give a little bit about your own faith or irreligious faith journey? Sure. So my name is uh, Benjamin Blake Speed Watkins. Yes, that is my real name. Um, it makes me very easy to find on Google. Um, I grew up in a conservative Quaker tradition in the rural South in South Carolina. And about uh, after I graduated college, I started to really wrestle with um, what role my faith played in my life going forward. And in doing so, I discovered philosophy of religion. And kind of my philosophy career has kind of, that's kind of where everything started for me. It just kind of snowballed, but eventually I, my faith was eroded. And I am now the host of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast, um, where my co-host Justin Schieber and I discuss questions in the philosophy of religion from non-theist perspectives and try to see what we can salvage as far as religious concepts go and what religion can look like moving forward once we've um, rejected something like perfect being theism, which would include most of the tra traditional monotheisms like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Awesome. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show. This will, like I said, I think this is going to be a great debate with you on board. So, um, awesome. So I want to turn to the other debater on the pro shroud on the, uh, sorry, the pro resurrection side. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I, I saw you slip that in there. <laughs> I had to try, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Hugh, why don't you give the audience, uh, obviously they're familiar with you, but you know, give us a bit of an update and maybe unmute yourself while you do that. <laughs> That'll help. Some people uh, might not uh, know me apart from my uh, work on the Shroud, which is what I'm chiefly celebrated for in this in this forum. But uh, really, I'm uh, I'm a Catholic. I'm a science teacher. I've spent my entire life not studying theology. I've spent my life teaching hamsters to read for children and uh, and blowing things up in science labs. So uh, I'm uh, if I could be thought of as out of my depth, I am way out of my depth. However, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, and um, so I suppose I, I follow Catholic teachings, and I've read a few Catholic books and so on. 
So I hope that what I say will not be thought too heretical by all my Catholic friends. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Cool. Well, yeah, with that said, um, let's let's get straight into it, guys. Let, let's get straight into this debate. And um, on that front, I think we'll we have a couple opening statements, uh, about 10 to 15 minutes or so from each of the guests. And then we're going to get straight into an informal dialogue between the two uh, and then ending off with a Q&A period between me and the co-hosts. And if you have questions in the in the audience, put it in the live chat and we'll read those as well. But uh, let's start with the opening statements. And Hugh, I'll, I'll start with you uh, to give the affirmative case here. Uh, yes. Uh, from what I've learned uh, by being on Dale's show, I understand that it's the person who makes the statement uh, who has the burden of proof. So uh, I guess that's me this time. Anyway, here we go. Well, rather to my surprise, I found during the course of my research for this debate that the resurrection is one of the least disputed events of the first century and the least disputed of first century Israel. Even people who completely deny that Jesus existed at all mostly agree that the vast amorphous cultural and social association that we call Christianity began in Jerusalem in the first half of the first century as a result of something that early Christians, at least, began to call the resurrection. So this debate is not to my mind as to whether the resurrection occurred, but what actually happened and when and where. Now, I think people who deny that an itinerant Jewish preacher called something like Yeshua actually lived and died in Judea about 2000 years ago have a different challenge from those who accept his existence. So I've confirmed that at least in this debate, we're working from the premise that he did exist. And from those opening remarks, uh, which I hope both sides of the debate will agree on, I hope that instead of being antagonistic, we may both work together to narrow down the facts of the resurrection as far as we can. And I really do believe that by the end, we will find that we what we agree on far outweighs in importance what we disagree on. Now, along the way, I hope that my non-Catholic friends will forgive my distinctly Catholic point of view. Because we do not, we Catholics, agree that all the truth there is can be found in the Bible. The doctrine of sola scriptorum is not now, nor ever has been, a doctrine of Catholic Christianity. Nor do we think that any particular passage in the Bible must be taken literally. We do not think that the Bible was written by God. We do think that the Bible was inspired by God, but that gives interpretation in the light of human reason plenty of wriggle room. And this is not a modernist or a reactionary view. In the fifth century, St. Augustine famously remarked that it was a disgraceful thing to hear a Christian presume to interpret Holy Scripture in a manner contrary to established science, which would only show up his ignorance and inspire well-deserved scorn. How could pagans possibly be brought to an understanding of the message of Christ, he asked, if they think that the Bible is full of falsehoods on facts which they themselves have, have learnt from experience and the light of reason? Now, as I mentioned earlier, I have never formally studied Catholic theology, so I'll have to rely on those who have explored this subject before me, in particular the late Pope Benedict XVI, whose volume on Holy Week has provided significant inspiration for my argument today, 
although we do differ on several quite important points. Now, sadly, my reading of Catholic theology is not such that I can claim scholarly consensus for his point of view. But surely, if one had in complete ignorance to pick one Catholic scholar out of thousands, you can't be blamed too harshly if you choose a pope. Now, Pope Gen Benedict is not impressed by the dead coming back to life. Simply the miracle of a resuscitated corpse, he calls it, and no more important than the resuscitation of a clinically dead person through the art of doctors. Well, it's quite a wonderful achievement, I may say, since the record time for being dead before being resuscitated today is measured in minutes rather than hours, but nevertheless, a human achievement and not a divine one. Biblical tradition, after all, suggests that Jesus's followers had already witnessed two people rising from the dead and a third emerging from a tomb in which he had been dead for three or four days. At the moment of Jesus's crucifixion, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And with the evidence of all these people arrayed before them, it's a wonder that anyone doubted the resurrection at all. Uh, now, <clears throat> before we go on, I think I must clarify something, and that is that I won't be claiming that any particular episode in a gospel is factual on the evidence of the gospels alone. I I'm personally may believe it to be factual, but I don't expect my personal beliefs to cut much ice with an atheist. Uh, and I think a lot of the Christian apologetic, uh, apologists forget that. However, I will be supposing, based on the evidence of the last couple of thousand years, that the people who read the Gospels and read them now understand them to be true, albeit within fairly wide definitions of the word understand and true, and that the people writing them understood them to be true. So did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, for the answer to be more than trivial, we need to be very clear about the significance of the three operative words in this question. Jesus, about whose corporeal existence we agree to agree, but which may include other concepts. Dead, which seems fairly clear, but is open to deeper interpretation. And rise, a word that, as I hope to explain in a way that you'll be happy to agree with me, is simply reeking of connotations far beyond simply getting up in the morning. And all of them will repay further examination. My methodology in my attempt to trace a path, first to understanding and then answering the question, will be to try to establish boundaries of uncertainty, like a police cordon around the possible position of a fugitive, and then try and close in on it together. I will suggest, with some evidence if necessary, that the story of Jesus rising from the dead can be localised in Jerusalem and became generally accepted by his followers within, say, five years at most of his crucifixion. And this implies that whatever formed the factual basis for the story, it was sufficiently realistic for people who knew Jesus well before his crucifixion to believe it implicitly. Although the Gospels were written much later and relied on earlier accounts, I don't think they could have contradicted the received wisdom of the younger church. Although I certainly acknowledge that for the evangelists, the precise details were no more than hearsay, and some may have been embellished or even invented to bolster their case. But that doesn't matter. The need to justify a case establishes that they felt that there was a case that needed to be justified. And it's my contention that that case emerged very soon 
after the specific event on which it is based. However, by the time the Gospels were written, the good news had spread into quite far-flung regions of the empire, and the historical, as well as the theological truth, had both evolved and diversified. No doubt there was cross-fertilization, and the extent to which Luke relied on Matthew, or Matthew on Mark, or whether they all referred to Q, and how isolated John's little community was from all the others, are still topics of scholarly debate rather than consensus today. But as time went on, there were clearly differences among the various Christian communities, not only in historical recollection, but more importantly, in what exactly the message of Christ was that they were all following. Some were more metaphysical than others. Some were more practical. Some thought in terms of the Jewish religion fulfilled and others of a new religion altogether. Some concentrated more on an imminent apocalypse and others on improving the condition of the people as they were. And as an evolutionary biologist myself, I find the accounts sufficiently different not to think that they're clones of each other, but sufficiently similar for me to think that they have a common ancestor, some indication of which may be given by features common to them all. Rather like human descent, the descent of the Gospels is more complex than a simple copying with alterations from the earliest to the latest. But even if it were, we can hardly think that the earliest gospel could have been made up out of whole cloth. The gospels emerged from their communities and were created as formal records of the faith of those communities. They were not, in terms of their teaching about Christ, new. Anyway, among the features common to all the scattered communities and therefore deriving, it seems to me, from Jerusalem very soon after the event, are the belief that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried nearby under the authority of Joseph of Arimathea, that the tomb was discovered to be empty the morning after the Sabbath, and that Jesus appeared to several people afterwards at pains to show that he was not a ghost. And these rather meagre fragments of belief are all that constitute what I think of as Jesus rising from the dead. And that's what I hope the gates of hell will find it difficult to prevail against. And that's my opening statement. <laughs> awesome. That was great. As you can see, he, he was very, uh, very animated and, and a great uh, presenter there. So, yeah, at this point, I, I want to turn it over to the uh, skeptical side, the, the denying of the resurrection. So, Ben, go ahead and take it away. Um, well, so I have a couple slides here. Let me share my yep. screen real quick. Okay, I've sent them your way. I've added to the stream. Oh, okay, there it is. Do you do you want to, it to be? Do you need it to be full screen, like cinema mode, or yeah, we can see it, kind of thing. Yeah, as long as as long as people can see it, I'm I'm cool. All right, cool. Uh, so first, before I begin, I want to thank Hugh for agreeing to come have this discussion today with me because I'm really excited. It's a Saturday afternoon. I've got a nice hot cup of coffee. I have an interlocutor with a wonderful British accent, and we get to talk philosophy. So I'm really excited um, to do this. So thank you again for taking taking the time to have this discussion with me. Um, so I take the question um, that we're discussing to be did Jesus rise from the dead? 
And according to what I'll call traditional Christian theism, um, God willed Jesus back to life three days after his death by crucifixion. And we can call this specific claim the resurrection hypothesis. Christians often claim the resurrection hypothesis is the best available explanation among competing explanations for the historical evidence surrounding the life and death of Jesus. But naturalists disagree. Metaphysical naturalism is the view that the natural world is causally closed, and any supernatural causes and miracles are excluded from its ontology. All causes on this view are natural causes. My aim is to argue in favor of an explanation consistent with metaphysical naturalism, but this will require me to say something about explanations more generally. There is an important distinction between a potential explanation that makes some fact more intelligible and an actual explanation. An actual explanation is a potential explanation it is reasonable to accept as the best explanation among competing explanations. There is another closely related distinction having to do with the sort of objections we can raise to explanations. An in-principle objection claims that some hypothesis is not even a potential explanation. And a de facto objection concedes some explanation is a potential one, but denies it is an actual one in practice. For the sake of argument, I will concede the resurrection hypothesis is a potential explanation. I will not offer any in-principle objection to it. My case will be limited to making a de facto objection to it. I will argue that the resurrection hypothesis is not the actual explanation for the historical evidence surrounding the life and death of Jesus in practice. I will defend three main contentions. The first is that miracles have a very low prior probability. The second is that the falsehood of religious miracle testimony is not very low. And my final contention is that the first two contentions justify what is often called methodological naturalism. My first two contentions will involve Hume's critique of miracle testimony. The Scottish philosopher David Hume infamously argued that the rationality of believing miracle testimony depends on weighing the varieties of conformity between testimony and reality against the probability of an event that has seldom fallen under our observation. Let's call this former, former consideration the reliability of testimony, and the latter consideration the prior probability of a miracle. Hume thinks these considerations are importantly related. Hume says, when the fact which testimony endeavors to establish partakes of the extraordinary and the marvelous, the testimony admits of diminution greater or less in proportion as the fact is more or less unusual. The reason why we place any credit in witnesses and historians is not derived from any connection which we perceive a priori between testimony and reality, but because we are accustomed to find a conformity between them. But when the fact attested is such as one has seldom fallen under our observation, here is a contest of two opposite experiences of which the one destroys the other as far as its force goes, and the superior can only operate on the mind by the force which remains. Hume's point here is that the low prior probability of an event can give us reason to doubt the credibility of testimony reporting it. Hume uses the example of Cato, who was widely regarded in his time as a reliable authority. He says, I should not believe such a story were it told to me by Cato, was a proverbial saying in Rome, even during the lifetime of that philosophical patriot. The incredibility of a fact it was allowed 
might invalidate so great an authority. Hume does not think we should believe a miracle has occurred on the basis of testimony if the probability of the testimony's falsehood is less than the probability of the violation of the law of nature. The philosopher of, J the philosopher of religion, J.H. Sobel, has called this Hume's theorem. Hume says, no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the miracle be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. Hume applies this to the resurrection of Jesus. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived, or that the fact which he relates should have really happened. I weigh the one miracle against the other and always reject the greater miracle. There are interpretations of Hume's theorem entailed by the Kolomogorov axioms of probability and the definition of conditional probability. So at least some interpretations are uncontroversially true. What's more controversial is what implications such principles have for what we should believe. Hume's theorem has the interesting implication that if one believes testimony of a religious nature is sufficient to establish a resurrection as more probable than not, given testimony in its favor, then one must also believe a resurrection is more probable than the falsehood of that religious testimony for the resur resurrection. For the Christian, Hume gives them a necessary condition to command his belief or opinion by establishing the miracle testimony as credible. But this necessary condition is a high bar indeed. This is the enduring argument of Hume's that has stirred up so much controversy since its publication. Its impact is certainly felt today. But Hume's exposition of this argument is less than formal by today's analytic philosophy standards. In 2008, the Cambridge philosopher Arif Ahmed debated the celebrated and eminent New, scholar, New Testament scholar Gary Habermas on the bodily resurrection of Jesus based on the eyewitness accounts given in the Gospels. Dr. Ahmed's argument certainly echoes Hume's, but is more importantly, it affords us the opportunity to see Hume's reasoning in a more contemporary context that makes use of developments in philosophy not available to Hume. Dr. Ahmed argues like this. The first premise, if two hypotheses are compatible with the evidence, we should prefer the one that we expect to be more frequent given evidence of that type. Second premise is, we have frequently observed and verified beyond doubt cases of independent and educated witnesses testifying at the time to something that didn't happen. And the third premise is, we never observe and ver we have never observed and verified cases of bodily reanimation after three days or of solid bodies passing through rock. Dr. Ahmed concludes that, therefore, it is more likely that the witnesses got it wrong. It's striking just how close this argument is to Hume's words. In his first premise, Dr. Ahmed claims that, other things being equal, we should prefer the hypothesis that we expect to be more frequent given evidence of that type. This is close to what Sobel called Hume's theorem. The third premise that we have never observed in verified cases of bodily resurrection is the conclusion we reached by considering the prior probability of miracles. The prior probability of a miracle is so low, Hume, Hume claims the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. Dr. Ahmed's second premise is that independent and educated witnesses are known to give false testimony. 
When we reflect on the historical unreliability of religious miracle testimony in general, we are left with a question. Is it more probable that witnesses should either deceive or be deceived, or that the fact which they relate should really have happened? Human claim we must weigh the one miracle against the other and always reject the greater miracle. A resurrection is certainly a miraculous event, but the falsehood of religious miracle testimonies are relatively ordinary events. My final contention involves appealing to a methodological rule. A modern feature of historical and the natural sciences is often called methodological naturalism. According to this rule, we should proceed in our empirical investigations as if metaphysical naturalism were true. Methodological naturalism has the support of nearly 400 years of historical and scientific progress that Christianity has not similarly, similarly enjoyed. If Christianity and naturalism are two competing research projects, then naturalism is clearly the more successful one. We frequently observe naturalistic hypotheses replacing Christian ones, but we never observe the other way around. The success of methodological naturalism is a matter of course, given naturalism, but it is surprising given Christian theism. When considering miracle testimony of a religious nature, methodological naturalism is a taken-for-granted feature of contemporary historical scholarship because, in practice, postulating actual miracles are poor explanations. Because miracle testimonies conflict, they cannot all be true but they could all be false. And if methodological naturalism is justified, then we are also justified in believing they are false. Given that both Christians and naturalists must explain away the credibility of the vast majority of miracles, naturalists accrue no explanatory disadvantages by explaining away the credibility of all miracles rather than just some. Let's put methodological naturalism into practice using an example from the philosopher of religion, Matt McCormick. He argues this way, we have better, better historical evidence for witches at Salem than we do for Jesus's resurrection, but we are not justified in believing there were witches at Salem. And if the historical evidence for witches at Salem is better than it is for Jesus's resurrection, yet we are not justified in believing there were witches at Salem, given the historical evidence, then Ceteris paribus, we are not justified in believing Jesus's resurrection given the historical evidence. Therefore, we are not justified in believing Jesus's resurrection given the historical evidence. But why I think the historical evidence for witches at Salem is better than the historical evidence for Jesus's resurrection? Well, we have interviews of the alleged direct witnesses, sworn affidavits, hundreds of confessions, and corroborated primary documents of the trials and executions. There were also great disincentives to lie because men stood to lose their wives, children to lose their mothers, and communities to lose their friends, yet many testified with conviction that the accused were witches practicing actual witchcraft. We can contrast this evidence with that for Jesus' resurrection. The first gospel, Mark, was written around 65 CE, Matthew between 70 and 100 CE, Luke around 70 CE, and Paul's letters around 50 to 60 CE. Both Matthew and Luke borrow heavily from Mark and possibly another source sometimes called Q. None of these authors were direct eyewitnesses to the alleged events. They heard stories from others and recorded them decades after their occurrence. 
If asked, why do we not believe which testimony at Salem is credible, we have Hume's theorem as a plausible answer to back up our methodological naturalism here. According to this theorem, if we believe which testimony is sufficient to establish which witchcraft as credible, then we must also believe witchcraft is more probable than the unreliability of witch testimony. But if it's more probable that witch testimony is unreliable than that witchcraft actually occurred at Salem, then witch testimony is not credible and we should not believe there were any actual witches at Salem. But the evidence for the reliability of witch testimony at Salem is much better than the evidence we have for the reliability of miracle testimony for Jesus' resurrection. This is the methodological naturalist picture that I've argued is justified. Hume's theorem presents the Christian with an awkward dilemma. They can either admit there was actually witchcraft in Salem, which would open a Pandora's box of competing supernatural explanations, or they must explain why it's rational to believe in Jesus' resurrection, but not witchcraft at Salem, in a way that is consistent with Hume's theorem. It seems to me, and I would argue to everyone else, the Christian has their work cut out for them here. And I'll go ahead and end right there. All right. Awesome. So, yeah, thank you so much for that, Ben. Uh, another great presentation there. Um, so what I want to do at this point, um, I want to go to the informal dialogue part of the discussion. So um, I think, Hugh, you you started first with the opening. So, Ben, I'll, I'll start it with you to kind of kick off the informal uh, discussion between you and Hugh. Um, well, so I've, since I just gave my... Uh, um, opening statement, I think it would be fair to give Hugh an opportunity to, because I've laid out at least three arguments on the table. I laid out um, Arif Ahmed's argument. I laid out uh, an argument for methodological naturalism and the success of the historical and natural sciences under that assumption. And I laid out Matt McCormick's Salem witch trial argument. So I have a lot on the table and I would like to see where um, Hugh goes about tackling those yeah. three arguments or where you think the best place to dive in is. Well, um, because I wasn't sure what we were going to do, um, I actually wrote a three or four minute rebuttal of your opening awesome. statement. Yeah, look, go, go right ahead then, please. And because, because you sent it to me earlier. So, <laughs> so where's my rebuttal? Here it is. Is that, is that <laughs> all right, Dale? Is that, is that what you've got in mind? Yeah, no, that's perfect. Whatever you guys want to do. Okay, so I'd like to begin, I'm not sure whether, I say by unpacking Ben's fourth sentence. Well, of course, we've been waffling a bit, so it might have been your fifth or sixth. Who knows? Your sentence, which is, Christians often claim the resurrection hypothesis is the best available explanation among competing explanations for the historical evidence surrounding the life and death of Jesus. I don't agree with that. The most widely accepted piece of historical evidence surrounding the life and death of Jesus is not what happened to his body, which, as I mentioned in my opening statement, was described by Pope Benedict as the resuscitation of a corpse, but the foundation and subsequent spread of Christianity. The physical facts about Jesus rising from the dead must always be seen in this light. And I think Ben narrows the issue too quickly and too far. If the resurrection of Christ was not of any res uh, relevance today, rather like the outcome of the Salem witch trials, then sure, no historian would credit its factual occurrence. And it's important to bear this in mind as we move on to Hume, who spends a long time stating the obvious, 
before first missing his target and then shooting himself in the foot. His general appearance, uh, opinion, which I think is entirely reasonable, is that extraordinary phenomena require extraordinary evidence for credibility. Multiple witnesses of good character all saying the same thing would be a good start. But the extraordinary phenomenon in this case, which Hume and Dr. Ahmed and Ben all deny, is that a corpse can be resuscitated. Now, this is, I'm going to get a bit complicated. They seem to imply that the very definition of death is the impossibility of resuscitation. Well, if that is the definition of death, then of course Jesus didn't rise, didn't rise from the dead because it, it, the definition is that it's not possible. But if you were to uh, restate it as the definition of death is, uh, as it is by doctors today, the cessation of all recognition of uh, vital processes or something like that, then you've got quite a different, uh, a different thing in mind. Um, the medic modern medical literature is littered with instances of something called the Lazarus syndrome, in which people certified dead, completely dead, by qualified medical experts, far more qualified than any of the uh, Roman soldiers or, or, or Jewish people of the time, uh, have certified of dead, and then they've subsequently recovered. The record for this is 17 hours of clinical death, certified dead, laid out, ready to get ready to be buried, and then she got better, dear lady. <sighs> I've already mentioned that Jesus is reported as having revived three people, and there's even an instance in the Old Testament of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, bringing someone back from the dead. Now, these Old Testament ones, and even the, new the modern ones, don't strictly compare to Jesus, but we must not consider, we must not define death as in the impossibility of revival. Now, where Hume drifts off course is in misrepresenting something that any reasonable examination of improbable evidence would think very important and relevant. If the irreproachable Cato told me something wholly unreasonable, I wouldn't just disbelieve him. I'd try to find out why he was telling it to me. I would wonder why a person of such credibility should suddenly try to foist an incredible story on me. And the reason what he was for, for his doing so might help me understand what the truth was behind it. How did the received wisdom of the Christian communities come to include the resurrection story, especially the community in Jerusalem, some of whom knew Jesus and had had their own experiences of whatever it was? Arant falsity would have been literally incredible uh, and certainly uh, even Hume, I think, must accept improbable. Finally, Hume illustrates his point with some imagined tales of events of the 1st of January 1600, which Ben will be very familiar with, but which will be um, amazingly instructive to Tyler and David and Dave. Uh, he imagines for his purposes uh, that there were some well-witnessed, well-attested and widely circulated um, events that had been circulated and were uh, uh, present uh, in the present day, which in his case was about 170 years later. The first is, and I quote, there was total darkness over the whole earth for eight days. And this, he decides, philosophers ought to receive, um, uh, uh, philosophers ought to re receive as certain and ought to search for the causes whence it might be derived. 
He thinks that the to the whole earth being completely dark for eight days is quite possibly a, 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 a naturalistic explanation. It could be a nat naturalistic explanation for it. Well, I think that would uh, slightly puzzle the astronomers of today. And his second statement is that Queen Elizabeth, who was on the throne at the time, had died. But after a month again, she again appeared, resumed the throne and governed England for three years. I must confess, says Hume, that I should be surprised at the concurrence of so many odd circumstances, but I should not have the least inclination to believe so miraculous an event. And I don't believe him and I don't believe uh, he believed himself. He may not in the first case immediately have received it as certain, but I have no doubt whatever that he would certainly have gone on to search for the causes whence it might be derived. Now, uh, the last illustration, that of the witches of Salem, I think is a dreadful uh, comparison because uh, you don't distinguish between what actually happened and the accusation of witchcraft that accompanied it. I don't think either of us will deny that for a few months in 1762, in an extremist Puritan community in Massachusetts, a number of people suffered severe fits. Some were possibly due to illness or disease. Some were affected by mass hysteria and they all declared they were witches. Even if we take the witness statements as their literal versions of the literal truth, there is nothing we would regard as even suggesting the supernatural today. Just because some people at the time blamed the event on the devil is no reason at all why we should do the same, whether we're atheists or Catholics. And this is exactly the opposite of what we're dealing with in the resurrection. We're not dealing with a disputed conclusion resulting from some undisputed facts. We're dealing with the disputed facts behind an undisputed conclusion. That Christianity began in first century Judea is not disputed, and that its founders put much store in the resurrection as a seminal moment in that foundation is also not disputed. What we're discussing is what might have happened to inspire such a belief, which is exactly the opposite of what happened at Salem. That's my rebuttal. Awesome. So um, I first I'd want to start with places where we have some agreement. So I was very um, happy to see that you have been reading some Hume. That got me very excited. <laughs> um, very, very well done. Um, and that you also conceded at least the colloquial version of, um, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, something, something along the lines of what Hume wants to say is that we should be proportioning our beliefs to the evidence. And because for me, that's where Hume's theorem comes in. So what I, what J.H. Schobel calls Hume's theorem is the idea that if we are to believe that an extraordinary event has happened, the falsehood of that um, event happening would have to be even more extraordinary. And so you're quite right that Hume illustrates this um, example with uh, his eight days of darkness. So he thinks that the sort of testimony that we would need in order to establish a violation of a law of nature, um, something uh, when he's taking a law of nature in this case to be our uniform experience of the sun always rising. If there was just this eight day period 
um, of time in the past where all traditions across the world uniformly um, uh, testified to this event that there was that there, for these eight days um, the sun did not rise and that this this was a violation of the law of nature. You're quite right by saying like modern astronomers, astronomers just would not be able to make heads or tails of such an event happening, but we should still accept it as something that had happened. And so, but then he goes into history and he says that, look, we don't have any sort of evidence of testimony, anything like that. And so this is where the Salem witch trial argument comes in as an illustration. So the Salem witch trials are much closer to us in history and occur during a much more enlightened period um, of human knowledge and in which we um, have really good evidence for, you know, direct evidence, firsthand evidence of the events. And because we have that evidence, it's not hard for us to see how the actual explanation of those events is consistent with metaphysical naturalism. And so if the evidence were to be that good, I would argue for Jesus's resurrection, it would not be that hard to see why, how the actual explanation is also consistent with um, metaphysical naturalism. So I it, correct me if I'm wrong. I think at the start of your opening, you said that what is really the central piece of evidence to look at here is the spread of Christianity, how it started, not looking at the potential explanation that I put on the table of God willed Jesus back to life after three days. Well, so I guess I see the order of explanation different than you do in the sense that, so the fact that we're trying to explain is the rise of the Christian tradition. You're quite right in that I can see the facts surrounding the rise of the Christian tradition in the, early, the, the history of the early church. Those facts I'm not disputing. But what explains those facts? Why should the like what makes those facts more intelligible? I would say is the explanation. What the Christian wants to offer is God willed Jesus back to life three days after his crucifixion. And that this and that, that explanation the, the, is justified by the observation of the spread of the Christian religion. And it is by justifying this hypothesis that that's what the Christian would want to um, found their religion on and to use Hume's word in such a way that could command your belief or opinion. That the, the evidence that we have that we agree is sufficient to raise that hypothesis from merely a potential explanation to the actual explanation. Um, so do you, uh, how do you see did you uh, when it, when it, uh, cuz i i'm not quite sure what the objection was when you say that you don't see that the what i call the resurrection hypothesis as being the key feature what do you mean by that um, I, <clears throat> I was i was distinguishing um, which perhaps was a bit cheeky of me between <laughs> rising from the dead and resurrection. You see, I, I think yeah. by, by pinning it down and saying um, 
uh, uh, Jesus died, which is much more, and was buried and didn't rise from the dead, is a much more reasonable um, explanation of what happens when people die. But you've got to link that to the fact that, that somebody dying then gave rise to uh, 2,000 years worth of um, Christian religion. I'm, I'm quite taken by the fact that you, you were very impressed by the fact that Hume's rationality had 400 years to establish itself. I giggled to myself slightly. We've had 2,000 years to establish ourselves. <laughs> but <coughs> so, uh, uh, and again, you see, I, um, I, I go along with the, the, the Salem witch trials. We know exactly what happened. I agree with you. And so it comes as uh, we're able to discuss whether the people who thought they were witches or not uh, really were witches. We could talk about that entirely rationally. Christianity, uh, the origins of Christianity are very much more obscure. We, by, by, the, by our own admission, nobody saw what happened. We, we have a, a bloke who we agree died uh, and was put in a tomb at perhaps five o'clock on a Friday night. And then, <coughs> sorry, reappeared. Now, <coughs> we don't really know in what sense he reappeared. Uh, but a lot of people were at pains to say that he um, he could he ate the one thing that they were they were really keen on was the fact that he ate things. I don't know why, but perhaps that was to establish that somebody really did appear. Now. That's as far, so far, as I'd like to go. Somebody died, somebody was buried, somebody reappeared. Now, we, we haven't got any detailed accounts to say that's impossible or that's outside the bounds of um, naturalistic material, material, whatever it was, material naturalism or, or materialistic reason or anything like that. I was, I was intrigued by the fact that false, its falsehood must be... Um, must be more probable, or at least the opposite of it, must be more probable than the claim. And I'd like to know what is more probable for the foundation of the Christian religion on a bloke who was seen to eat fish three days or four days after he died. What, what's more probable than that? Um, and and you'll, uh, there are lots of possible, oh, it, was all, it was all a hallucination or something like that. Um, but I wonder how, whether that's going to narrow down to being actually very likely or, or sound more likely. The Christian position um, is that although we have literally no idea exactly what happened, and as I say, we're very fond of, of our Gospels announcing nobody saw the resurrection. The Parche, um, Ian Wilson and Russ Brio and people like that. There were no witnesses. Not even the shroud was a witness to the resurrection. Um, <laughs> we don't know what happened. But we do know what happened before. We have accounts of what happened afterwards. And we are at a loss to decide. Well, I mean, we're, 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 we'll be anxious to listen to your interpretation as to what might have accounted for that that makes a different interpretation more probable. Does that make sense? Yeah, so um, I'll go ahead and kind of lay my cards on the table and say that, you know, as far as 
the actual explanation for all of the facts. I don't know what that is, that actual explanation is because it's in all likelihood it's been lost to history. And all we have are fragments of what that actual explanation is. So the best I can offer is a potential explanation, one that is consistent with metaphysical naturalism. That's what I want to say is going to be the most probable here. And that's that's the methodological naturalist rule that I'm appealing to here. And so to just put on the table what I think. So in this time period, from what I've understood from historical um, scholars, um, and I want to be very careful about the historical claims that I make because um, this isn't entirely my wheelhouse and I don't want to, you know, end up on a, a highlight reel of, you know, uh, history for atheists saying something ridiculous. So <laughs> that does happen too. <laughs> yeah, it, ha it happens. And so I want to, you know, kind of guard myself from that, uh, which is why I've distanced myself from, you know, Jesus mythicism and whatnot, and will concede the historical facts as historical scholars see them as most probable because I have to defer to ex experts on this. But from what I've understood from my reading in this area is that um, grave robbing is not all that uncommon in this time period. People are buried with valuables in tombs and, it's, and um, Jesus was a religious figure and so it might be that, you know, there are motives to steal the body of a religious figure. Um, I also am sympathetic to hallucination hypotheses uh, to explain facts about having seen, you know, pe people seeing um, a, a Jesus many days later. Um, it's often a narrative, you know, there are examples in history of visions being written as actual vision that every, you know, private visions that are written. Um, as visions that everyone has seen, we've that we have historical examples of that. Um, the most common hallucination examples ha happen to involve deceased loved ones and religious figures, and you know Jesus's death checks both those boxes. So I don't find it entirely implausible um, that the something of this sort might explain might be part of the actual explanation of all these facts. But I want to put on the table is that these explanations, because they are con more consistent with the methodological naturalism that I laid out, that that's a reason to prefer these explanations um, as opposed to supernatural explanations that are involve a violation of a law of nature by the particular will of an invisible agent. And so I think that the prior probability of such an event is so low that that's something that's weighing against the credibility of such testimony. And we need to weigh that. Again, we're proportioning our belief to, to evidence. We want a really, really strong evidence of testimony, something that would, it's being false, would be as improbable as a violation of the law of nature. Something like Hume's eight days of darkness, where we have testimony from everyone around the world, exceptionless testimony of it. Something that that resembles more like a controlled science experiment than a survey of fragmented historical documents. And so the idea is that the prior probability that dead men stay dead is very, very high. And the evidence that we need to outweigh that just isn't the evidence that we have. Well, how do I support that? 
that's where the Salem witch argument comes in and saying that, look, we have examples. If we're being consistent, we know we, we, uh, I, I highly encourage people to um, research the Salem witch trials. We really don't know why people had the hysteria that they did and made the claims that they did. It seems like we have really good evidence for witchcraft at Salem, yet we don't actually believe that there were, there was witchcraft at Salem because we don't, we believe that the falsehood of that testimony is much more likely than witchcraft. And so if we apply that same standard, that same Hume's theorem standard that we apply at Salem, Serratus Paribus, we're going to say that, look, we might not have, we might not be in possession of the actual explanation that might be lost to history, but that methodological naturalist rule is going to say the, the explanations that are consistent with metaphysical naturalism are the ones that are going to be more probable. Right. Um, thanks. Yes. Um, what I looking at? So we, you, you've had a, a quick look at, um, you, are we going for grave robbing? I just wondered. That's yeah. Did. I put that on. I put that on as a potential explanation of the facts. So maybe okay. disciples stole the body. Maybe there's some third party that stole the body. Again, I don't know. Um, but I think that these are more probable given our background Ooh. knowledge than well, something like a violation of a law of nature. Well, we're we're sort of hinging towards partially what I'm thinking at now is because we don't know what happened. So we can't say whether there was a violation of the law of nature or not. Um, rather than suggest, uh, as it were, what might happen, can we suggest what, what you think didn't happen? So nobody saw Jesus eating after he died. Um, no, or they, uh, no, I don't. So what I think happened, so when I say the prior probability here, I'm saying that the prior probability is in favor of dead men staying dead. So if Jesus really did die on the cross, if we are taking that as an assumption, my claim is that Jesus stayed dead. Mm -hmm. So whatever, when, when people saw him uh, on the side of a, of a beach eating fish or when he came in and, and all that sort of thing, that, that was a hallucination. That was a, either a hallucination if those events actually happened or our historical records are mistaken that there's because keep in yep. mind that all of the, the historical evidence that we have oh, yes. of uh, these events are written many decades after. And so, uh, yes, but as I say, they, they weren't just uh, made up many decades later. They were crystallized. No, they were, already yeah, they were taken. Yeah, they were um, taken. So they heard stories. Uh, we don't actually know who wrote the gospels as far you no, know, no, no, we no. have Mark, Matthew, Luke, and Paul, but so the, the, the gospels, as far as I know, we don't actually know who wrote them. No. Um, they're so anonymous authors. Oh, oh, quite so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll go along with that. Even, even Catholics don't think, well, actually quite a lot of them do, but uh, senior Catholics like myself don't necessarily think <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were written by anybody called Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It comes as a surprise, yeah. I may say, to a lot of Southern Americans that their names weren't actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, <laughs> yeah. and John, and that they didn't write in English. However, in 16th century English. Um, anyway, uh, I've, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we were taught, so my point was that... We've got um, the yeah. Yeah, no, he, he, 
So Go ahead. Go I'm ahead. the person um, here. Uh, uh, he's he he's watched his apparent savior, who has preached a message of um, repentance, redemption, uh, generosity to the uh, less favored people of society, in particular the poor. He's suggested uh, feeding the hungry, all that sort of thing. Anyway, he's now been uh, arrested, which I think, of course, is terribly unfair, and crucified and thrown into a pit. How long afterwards is it reasonable to suppose that somebody thought they saw him in a vision? And why would anybody believe I mean, everybody else had seen Jesus crucified and thrown into a pit. So I, I, supposing, let's take it a week later, St. Peter wakes up one morning and goes, oh, my God, I've seen Jesus. Are all his friends going to believe him? Is that is that rational? Is that more probable than the fact that he actually had seen Jesus? Well, yeah. So, uh, so I think. You know, what people said this at Salem about why, you know, you know, this person is a witch. Well, why would people believe them? No, no, but they no, no, did. No. Ah, but that, that was that because of their definite definition of witchcraft. It wasn't because of what happened. It was because of their understanding of what happened. Obviously, somebody threw themselves about the room, um, uttering imprecations and smashing the furniture. And then yeah, so said, we have. And affidavits of people said, saying that yeah, they had observed yeah. witchcraft and we have people confessing to yeah. having yeah, they uh, said they performed did. witchcraft. Yeah, that's right. But what they'd actually done, they had actually done. They had thrown themselves around the room. They had broken the furniture. And they had interpreted what they had done as a supernatural event. Now, what you seem to be suggesting is that they'd invented the supernatural the, 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 super, the, the statement that I am a witch, as it were, said by somebody, was completely unsubstantiated by anything they did, which is what happened with the Gospels. So Jesus, uh, St. Peter, say, a week later, stands up and says, I've seen Jesus. And everybody who actually witnessed Jesus being thrown into a pit or buried in a common grave believed him. But so, so how strange. But, but so how confident are we that there are people that saw a resurrected Jesus three days, a week, or whatever it was after his death? So we have, we have the Gospels, accounts of this, written many decades after the events. How confident are we that those accounts are factual? Oh, not at all. Not in the, not, not I say, let's put this, not in themselves. Now, for, for various reasons, people think that St. Paul, uh, his letters seem to be quite, uh, quite, quite well attested. And they were perhaps written um, in perhaps 40, 50 AD, something like that. Would you go for that? Uh, that sounds about right. Uh, again, whatever the history, yeah. I don't want to end up on history for atheists, whatever the scholars, scholarly consistency all these learned people <laughs> looking like angels down on top of us uh, on our screen are all chuckling to themselves because they all know exactly <laughs> when Corinthians was written and all the rest of it. But um, 
uh, let's think, it's either, is it Galatians or something like that? The very earliest one, Paul begins by saying, hi, you Galatians, I'm writing to you, as you know, in the name of Jesus, who was crucified and rose from the dead on the third day. He's saying, as you already know. So if he was writing to them saying, this is what you already know in the year 50, then they must have already known it some years before that. Because they were still, yeah, because they were, um, so they the heard stories from others and recorded yes, them decades after. So, so, so he's so saying, like, you already know from the stories yes. that X, Y, and Z happened. But again, we're this is a survey of historical documents. We're not confident that these this testimony is reporting facts as they are. Like, we would be confident in a testimony in, like, a controlled science experiment or the eight days of darkness, we would be much more confident in, in a testimony like that. So the, the um, religious miracle testimony, people reporting something that didn't actually happen is an, a fairly ordinary event in history. And so the Christian is committed to yeah. explaining away all of these other competing miracle testimonies. I made the no, point no, that- Not at all. I'd like to know how many of the hallucinations which you say people keep having are so widely believed that they founded a, a religion which has spread across the world and had, has got uh, whatever it is, one and a half billion adherents 2,000 years later. Now, I think that uh, dear old, um, I don't know, Mary Jane, who comes rushing out and says to her parish priest or perhaps to her brothers and sisters, I've seen granny and everyone pats her on the back and says, yes, we believe you, darling. Where do we go from there? Uh, nothing. You know, nobody goes and says, well, what did Granny say? You know, let's all do what Granny suggested. Did she give you her recipe for Christmas cake? Has she told us where the, where, where the crown jewels are buried? Nothing. I... Most people do not accept hallucinations. I mean, the people who have the hallucinations accept them. Of course they do. And they're absolutely convinced. And they're furious when anybody refuses to believe them. But people do refuse to believe them. But in the case of this... As far as we know, nobody refused to believe it. So if you, um, if you're a, um, I mean, people may have refused to believe the message of Christianity, especially all the good Jews who thought that Jesus was a fake Messiah, but they didn't uh, refuse to believe that Jesus had, had appeared to these people, which if they were hallucinations, surely they would have done. Well, so now, can't we parallel this argument with other religious traditions that are going to be inca yeah. incompatible with what we're saying here. Uh, am I uh, muted? No. Okay. Um, uh, so I, what comes to mind, obviously here, uh, the two obvious examples are Islam and Mormonism. And so it's it uh, it, at some level, the Christian is going to have to explain away those miracle testimonies that are foundational to those traditions. And so whether that be uh, Muhammad ascending um, on a white horse at Mecca, or whether it be Joseph Smith being visited by the angel Moroni, um, these are all plausibly explained as um, hallucinations that have been in hindsight written as public visions or something like that. And then we can ask the same question. We could say, well, well, then why did people believe these hallucinations? Why did something like Mormonism take root the way that it did and spread the way it did it? Why did Islam um, 
take root the way that it did based on these uh, events that involve violations of laws of nature that I'm saying can the more likely explanation is something more consistent with metaphysical naturalism like a hallucination. So it seems to me that we're both committed to explaining away um, religious miracle testimony on the basis of explanations that are consistent with metaphysical naturalism like hallucinations. Um, but I don't accrue any explanatory disadvantages by explaining away all religious miracle testimony as being false. But there is explanatory cost to only explain in a way some, because then you have to explain why. Why should we accept this religious miracle testimony, but not these religious miracle testimonies? And, th and I feel like the Salem argument really puts this into perspective. Mm. Because we have these, because if we accept witches, if we allow witches at Salem, now we've got a Pandora's box. Now we've got competing supernatural claims. Now we've got to admit supernatural violations of laws of nature in other religious traditions. And we have this problem of how do we, how do the, how does the evidence discriminate between these um, explanations? Whereas the naturalist has something like Occam's razor. They can just say, we shave away all of the supernatural explanations and nothing is left mysterious other than we just are not in possession of the actual explanation of these events because they've been lost to history. All right. So yes. Yes. Oh, so, well, I, I just, can I have just one rejoin? Yeah, yeah, yes, 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 please, please. I, I, I was setting that up for him to respond. <laughs> let, let you respond, but after that, I want to get to the Q&A. Because no, you're, 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 you're getting very close to, to um, the, 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 the non-authenticist's favorite shroud argument. Awesome. Right. I knew right. we were going to tie this into the Shroud of Turin, and I didn't know how, but I was really excited to see how we were going to do it. Dale was desperate for it. The, the <laughs> best, best non-authenticist, uh, the best authenticist argument, and the one that the non-authenticists love, is you don't know what happened, therefore I'm right. So... You've just said that we don't know. In fact, I've said I don't know. I don't know what happened in between Jesus being buried and Jesus eating chips and fish and chips on the side of the beach. Now, but not knowing what happened doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Sure. Now, you may say, you may say, and I would agree with you. you I can't claim that that was supernatural or a miracle. Or that God willed it. And for the purposes of our argument, I'm going to say, okay, maybe it wasn't supernatural. Maybe something perfectly natural happened. An elaborate illusion, like a like a magic trick. I'm not, not even going to suggest what it might be. I'm only going to say that the connection between those events that was made, uh, I'm suggesting that both of them are veridical events. And that the connection between them was the foundation of Christianity. I don't think that the hallucination theory holds any water at all. I cannot see a, um, a religion being founded on somebody who everybody saw dying 
and then somebody saying, no, he, he didn't really die. And then having to convince everybody else. Now, I dare say Peter might have convinced John and perhaps, um, I don't know, the, the, the Virgin Mary may have seen Jesus again or something like that. Um, but uh, I, I, I can't see that that being accepted by the majority of people who actually saw him dead and buried. And, uh, and, and, and what's more, that, I mean, that tradition having spread out, being accepted by more and more and more people quite soon after the event. Now, I just think you did mention Islam. I, I'm afraid I don't know enough about Mormonism to be able to comment on it. But Islam, of course, is, is founded on a book. And it's founded on a book written by its founder. And so its credibility relies on the strength of what is written in the book. Now, it may be that the book is full of fanciful ideas like people appearing in heaven or the or the descent of um, uh, uh, of the angel, Archangel Gabriel to dictate the book or whatever it was. But the the book is there and it exists and it was written by uh, Muhammad. So so I believe and there's, there's no dispute about that. And so the followers of Muhammad united around an actual piece of paper or parchment or something like that, uh, that he was there. And uh, by the time he died, his gospel had already been written. Whereas our, our gospels remained um, only only uh, verbal or, or not verbal, uh, oral, an oral tradition until, as we say, you know, uh, 50, 60 years later. All right. So, awesome. so I, I do, we do have time, unless Ben, unless you're a little bit flexible. Past oh, yeah, no, we're fine. I wanted to give him the last word. I set that up so that he could have the last word on that. Okay. that I think we've got, we've got the archangels, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel looking down on us now. <laughs> so, so I want to go to the Q and a period with the hosts and I'll start off. Um, Hugh, during the discussion, you guys kind of answered my, my two questions for Hugh already, but, just a clarification then for you, Hugh. And then I have two questions for Ben before I go yeah. to David and Tyler. Um, so just to clarify your case, uh, because I remember reading your opening case and being a little bit surprised when you're, you're talking about, oh, the resurrection isn't debatable. Even mythicists believe in it. And it's kind of like, what? But I think what you mean there is you're talking about belief in the resurrection. So you're kind of appealing to N.T. Wright's origin of the Christian belief type argument and trying, you know, explaining how that belief came up. Well, that you need the empty tomb. You need the, he died, buried, empty tomb, and the appearances to explain that. And then you're going to, okay, what's the explanation of those facts? Am I correct? Yes, Is that? I think, I think, I think that's entirely right. Um, if it wasn't foundational to Christianity, then uh, I would happily accept anybody who said, uh, I don't think it happened. And I go, yeah, probably not. You know, did uh, Jesus walk on water? Maybe, maybe not. Don't know. Um, I don't think that's foundational. Uh, but the and 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 uh, I don't think it's ever mentioned again. It appears in the Gospels, but uh, it's not something that either any of the letters of St. Paul or, or subsequent, uh, you know, the Holy Fathers relied on. Whereas the resurrection does seem to be um, an important signifier of the truth of Christianity, put it that way. Gotcha. All right, cool. And Ben, did, did you want to take a couple minutes to respond? Are you familiar with N.T. Wright's argument based on the origin of Christian belief in the resurrection? Or? Um, so superficially familiar with it. So I know, you know, sort of the popular expositions of it. But as far as any detailed um, historical research on it, I haven't done that myself. 
fair enough. All right, cool. So now I want to turn to you, and these are the questions you're going to like because it's pure philosophy based on your case, uh, because this is this is my area of fascination as well. So, okay, so two questions. The the first one is kind of a compound question, and it's based on your pre, the presuppositions that David Hume had baked into this this type of argument. So, the first one is, look, this is an argument uh, against testimonial evidence for miracles. So what's your take on the prior probability of non-testimonial evidence for miracles like the Shroud of Trent? Um, and sec secondly, just for an example, pretend it works. And secondly, when we are looking at testimonial evidence, an assumption that Hume had that doesn't really come up in these debates is in the epistemology of testimony. He assumes a reductionist stance whereby you need non-testimonial evidential bases before you believe in the testimony, um, whereas some might take a non-reductionist stance and say, no, testimony, it should be believed until proven guilty. So I, I'm just kind of interested on your take on those suppositions. Um, yeah, so let me kind of back up to try to give the big picture here. So with David Hume, um, you're quite right. And so he... His famous essay of miracles appears in an inquiry concerning human understanding, section 10. And so this is right in the middle of kind of his bigger philosophical picture. And that philosophical picture starts with um, a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge. So he sees a priori knowledge being matters of relations of ideas, things are like true by definition, and a posteriori being um, our experience of the world, so data that we get from the five senses. And so he wants to ask, um, how is it that we know um, a miracle has occurred? And so he's assuming that we are not directly observing um, a miracle event. Um, so this is when he says testimonial evidence, evidence of test, something like the Shroud of Turin would be evidence of testimony. It would be, but it would be of a different sort. It's not someone telling you that they had saw something, but it's making an inference from observate. You know, it's not, it's, you're not, directly observing the miracle itself. And so he thinks that the foundation of the Christian religion is predicated on the evidence, we, the weight of evidence we give to testimony. He sees the witnesses to Jesus's resurrection as being the testimony that then as time goes on, as that passes down, that's the evidence from experience. We don't know about the Jesus's resurrection by some relation of ideas a priori. We know about it from our experience. Well, how do we get it from our experience if we haven't observed it firsthand? We would get it from testimony. We would hear it from others, or we would infer it from observations we have in front of us, like the Shroud of Turin. These would all these he he sees that all as evidence of testimony in a way, and so he's. Uh, uh, really drawing from there's a tradition of Roman law that is, you know, how do you see whether or not someone's testimony is credible? And so he's just applying those standards for the credibility of testimony um, to the resurrection event. And he says, look, the prior probability of this 
miracle is very, very low. In fact, it's one of the lowest prior prior probabilities we have because we have this uniform experience of the event that's being described has never, we've, we've never observed a dead man coming back to life after three days. So it has the lowest prior probability. So what you want is the most reliable evidence of testimony. Well, you know, you want none of your, um, the evidence of testimony to contradict one another. You want it all to become from reliable sources rather than unreliable sources. You, you know, uh, Hume makes the remark, you know, knavery and folly have no weight with us. You know, people who are known for, you know, these would be, they would have the utmost integrity, the most utmost honesty. They would be the most informed about these sorts of things. They would be experts in whatever particular um, judgments they were making. That this is the kind of testimony because he wants to see, you know, because he sees that there's a variable um, conformity between facts as they're reported and facts as they are. And so he, what he wants is testimony that very, very, very reliably um, reports facts as they are, and that that's how you're going to establish. So I, I also mentioned in my opening statement the, the a distinction between a um, de facto objection and an in-principle objection. A lot of people interpret Hume as given an in-principle objection, kind of like a silver bullet that, that miracles can't happen. It's, it cannot be rational to believe a miracle. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think it's a de facto objection. He's saying, look, the evidence that we need just is not the evidence that we have. We could have the evidence. This is what the evidence could be. This is what it would look like. And this is how far short it falls from what we need. And so really in one fell swoop, what he's trying to do is um, get rid of superstition in founding religious belief on something like miracle testimony. He just thinks that's not a good enough foundation to um, found a religion on. Does that get you to an atheism or a metaphysical naturalism? No. Uh, Hume's, Hume's arguments alone are not going to get you to that. Hume's own views are controversial in that, you know, he's in many interpretations considered a theist. That's why I have the other arguments supplementing Hume, because Hume doesn't quite get you there if you see him as making this de facto objection to miracle testimony across the board. And were you jamming out to uh, Beastie Boys as we were uh, giving that answer there? Yeah, my phone rang. Of course, my phone my, uh, sabotaged. I thought, that was like like, your, I thought that was like your mic drop moment there. No, <laughs> like, no, this no, is the answer. <laughs> Beastie Boys are, are near and dear to my heart. I grew up in the oh. 90s just rocking out to Beastie Boys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So last question for, for Ben, and then I'll turn it to, to Tyler to ask his questions for the guests. But... Um, so one thing, uh, I think it was premise one in your argument where you're talking about, look, the, all else equal, we've got to prefer the most frequent events. And obviously the most frequent thing is that people. Yeah, I could read that premise out if that would help. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the premise is, and it's from Dr. Arif Ahmed's uh, debate with um, Gary Habermas. Um, he says, if two hypotheses are compatible with the evidence we should prefer the one that we expect to be more frequent given evidence of that type. Okay. And so this is Arif Ahmed's uh, interpretation of what J.H. Sobel called Hume's theorem, where Hume says no testimony is sufficient 
to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. Okay, so so here would be, I would qualify that principle actually, and I would say it has to be given a specified reference class. So within a specific reference class, the most frequent uh, type. Yeah, of that's what he would mean by of such a kind. Of such so, and so, well, so uh, R.F. Armand doesn't use the phrase of such a kind. He says more frequent given evidence of that type. So there's a, a famous distinction in philosophy um, between a type and a token. And so this is a token interpretation would be um, something, a very particular um, example of something, whereas a type would be a class of tokens. And so he, he would want to interpret Hume as making a type argument, an argument that appeals to the concept of a type rather than a, a, a particular token testimony. He's looking as testimony as a kind okay. rather than just one particular token of a testimony. Okay, so uh, yeah, I was about to ask my question, but Hugh, if you have something quick quick to say, uh, you're muted, by the way. Uh, sorry, no, a, a response to that last little bit um, that we've just had. Um, firstly, of course, Hume is discussing the evidence, the evidence of this and the evidence of that. And I think one of the most important things about the resurrection is that there isn't any. I mean, we have the evidence of a dead body. We have an evidence of somebody being spoken to, but we we don't, uh, the, you know, the, the risen Jesus. But we don't have anything in between. And without this um, being very specific, there's nothing specific for Hume to disagree with, um, in my opinion. The other thing is that he 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 gets it completely wrong, and he, he shoots himself in the foot by quoting two absolute impossibilities in his mind one that the earth might be dark for eight days and second that queen elizabeth might have died and come back to the throne a, a month later and on the uh, evidence merely of testimony he decides that he would accept that the earth had gone dark for eight days but he wouldn't accept the fact that elizabeth had died and come back to, to and come back to rule england but i think modern um, scientists would think exactly the opposite. We would completely refuse the idea that the Earth had gone dark for eight days, but we would consider that there might be some medical possibility. After all, it's happened some 30, 40 times in the last century that Elizabeth had died and then recovered and somehow, um, you know, been allowed to, to regain the throne. So his... Um, his assessments are not, in fact, based on evidence or improbability. They're based on his own personal assessment of what he thinks is improbable, which is not a universal improbability. And then I'm just going to throw in one little thing before you move on, just to throw you all. Um, and that is this idea that uh, Jesus came back to life after three days. Who says he came back to life after three days? Maybe it was four hours. And the record for resuscitation from the dead is now. He was put in a grave uh, with a stone rolled across it or something similar some three hours after he died and he wasn't seen again for three days doesn't mean he didn't uh, recover with all those myrrh and aloes all around him and all the rest of it there's a thought for you anyway leave it there uh, all right cool yeah so uh, just for the audience i'm gonna i'm gonna save time but yeah obviously what i was talking about this type or reference class thing it this is where Christian apologists will bring in the religious context. And that 
makes it different to random people like Queen Elizabeth rising from the dead. Anyways, but I'm going to move up. Tyler, I'm going to give you a chance because I want to make sure you have time to yeah. probe both of our debaters. Is there any way um, that we could put the RF Ahmed, uh, RF Ahmed, excuse me, uh, slide back up just we so sure I've got a visual reference? And also, while while Ben's doing that, I want to encourage our audience, uh, if you have a question, now would probably be the time to put those questions so we can get them. Uh, also, I want to take the time to to promote. Uh, so Faith and Altered has just hit 1,000 subscribers, which means if you want to support this ministry, you can put a super chat up. Now, you're going to have to go to, if you're watching on Real Seekers, you're going to have to go to the Faith and Altered channel because Dale hasn't hit that 1,000 subscribers. But if you give us a super chat, we will get your questions to the front of the line and it would be a good way to support our ministry if you uh, decide to do that. And so with that being said, I think this is it. Um, let's see if two hypotheses. Okay, yeah, this is great. So Ben, I've just got one question for you. And given this, this understanding, I kind of look at this as like a formula with different parts to be inserted into the formula or taken out. And given that... Whenever we see, whenever we hear, um, is it more probable for someone to lie versus someone rising from the dead? In my mind, what I'm hearing, and if you take the conclusion that, yes, miracles, of course, don't happen, then it's almost like it's setting this up for failure in a sense, because you already exclude the possibility of Jesus rising from the dead. If you take that part out, however, and insert it with something like, is it more probable for someone to tell the truth versus someone to lie? And given all of the historical facts, we can say that is testified in the Gospels about what happened to the apostles. For example, in my mind, suffering, torture, and ultimate death, right? Is it more probable for someone to tell the truth and then be tortured uh, and ultimately you know, succumb to those tortures, death, for example, and be truthful, or is it more probable for that person to lie and die knowing that they're dying for a lie. My question is, if you take the miracle out and insert it with something that happens every day, i.e. people telling the truth, would that change this up for you at all to come to the conclusion that, okay, maybe these people actually did tell the truth if we're going off of this whole hypothesis as a whole. Does that make sense? Or do I need to go a little bit? Further? I don't know. I, I don't know if I fully understand you. So if I, if, if, if it sounds like I'm kind of lost, just feel free. To, no, fair enough. <laughs> I'm kind of coming up with this stuff like just off the top. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not being no, clear. for sure. Sure. It's, it's definitely abstract. So the way um, I will first want to say that we don't want to beg any questions. And so I don't think that we should understand Hume as saying that miracles are impossible or ruled out by definition. Okay. Um, we, we definitely don't want to say that because that's not <laughs> a valid move to make against a Christian in this dialectic. Um, so again, remember that Hume is starting from relations of ideas and which is the a priori and our experience, which is the a posteriori. So we want to find both features in this argument. So the first premise is the relation of ideas. That's the Hume's theorem. This is what we would know a priori. This is what's entailed by the Kolomogorov axioms of probability. And so in a, in a sense, it's true by definition. So that's if two hypotheses are compatible with the evidence, we should prefer the one 
that we expect to be more frequent given evidence of that type. So this would be the kind of the foundational, this is like the mathematics of the argument. And so the starting point. And so premises two and three are moving to our experience. They're saying, okay, well, what do we get from experience? Mm -hmm. Think of premise one as the formula and think of premises two and three as the variables that get plugged into the formula. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the first one is, is saying, you know, in our, uh, the second premise is we have frequently observed and verified beyond doubt cases of independent and educated witnesses testifying at the time to something that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So we're going into our experience and we're measuring the frequency of what we've observed about some fact of our experience. Sure. And then we're doing the same thing in the third. And so third premise. So we take those two empirical premises and what conclusions can we draw from those two empirical premises? Well, not much unless we have that first premise. That first premise then is what gives a, licenses our inference to the conclusion. It is more likely that the witnesses got it wrong. And so when we say the, the witnesses got it more likely, the witnesses got it wrong, what we're saying is that it's more likely that they would deceive or they themselves had been deceived. Sure. So, we, so it's very, very broad conclusion. And there are certain assumptions that um, Arif Ahmed is making, that he's, he's making use of philosophical advancements that just weren't available to Hume, things like the probability calculus. So he's understanding probability in a certain way here, which is often called a frequentist interpretation of probability. Okay. And so we could um, challenge um, the first premise on some sort of a priori grounds like that, or we could challenge either of the two empirical premises on um, empirical. We could say, no, there's actually, there, there are these, we have witnessed um, um, reliable um, testimony to um, uh, violation of a law of nature. That's what Hume's example of an eight days of darkness was he's like if we had an example like that in history if we went back in history and found testimony like that that could undercut this argument so if you're asking me how could i change the argument like if if certain considerations had have come up heads rather than tails yeah. would it change you know would i make the inference to the conclusion that's how i would change my mind about this argument so because you know obviously i think this argument is sound but if I were to think that it's unsound, where are its weak points? Where would I think that it could be challenged? One, I think it could be challenged in the first premise in that you could try to, on a priori ground, say that this Hume's theorem is for some reason or not, not relevant to the our judgment of whether or not uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Famously, Alvin Plantinga takes this um, position. He thinks that um, a belief in Jesus's resurrection is something that's properly basic. And so that we wouldn't need something like a probability calculus and evidence from experience um, of evidence of testimony in order to make this hypothesis more probable than not. He just would, he would go a reformed epistemology route. Right. But I find it really hard. I, to me, I just don't conceivably know how to deny premises two and three. Um, those just seem like straightforward. That's, that's really the strength of Hume's philosophy is that he just, he just goes to our experience. He just makes, yeah. you know, pretty obvious observations about 
um, experiences we all uniformly share. So let me follow up that with with this, and and maybe I can make my first question a little bit more clear because I think um, I, we started off good, but then I think we kind of got lost in the weeds. So let me just break it down like this, and maybe this will help uh, both of us and our listeners. If we take, and I like the way you explain that, by the way. So thank you for that. But if we take premise three out of this formula that you have here, right? We have never observed and verified cases of bodily reanimation after three days. If we took that out and plugged in, it's somewhat similar to what you have in premise two, but let's say this, we have frequently observed and verified beyond doubt cases of independent and educated witnesses testifying at the time to something that did happen. We do have that, right? We, we see that all the time. Would that change the conclusion of this? argument well probably not so because of the second premise we had we're saying the negation of what you just suggested we frequently right. see you know and so now we have a contest of two probabilities that just kind of cancel each other out so what are we left with at this point where we're given at best this would get us maybe to an agnostic um inference because there's uh, if, if we use hume's theorem in the first premise in combination, you know, we say, well, we have, we have frequently observed people telling the truth and we frequently observe people um, saying something false. Well, which one should we believe? It doesn't seem like we have any discriminating piece of evidence there to draw any conclusion with any sort of certainty. Okay. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Hugh, do you have any follow-up to that? You're muted again. Uh, I just want to. Attack. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. So, <laughs> I just want to have a look at this 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 proposition number three that rising from the dead doesn't happen. Uh, it's not that unlikely. It does happen. It happens remarkably often. So, I mean, just bear that in. It's not the total impossibility that Hume thought it was. Um, it was. I mean, it wasn't even that um, badly observed, even in his own day. It's just because he personally had no knowledge of people who've been buried and then um, and then resurrected later certainly doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Um, it was, as you will see uh, from sort of antiques roadshows and things, people used to be buried with bells in their coffins in case they weren't really dead. Um, and, and But people were declared dead and that's sort of in, in even that was, I'm talking about in his day. But even today, Doctors are certifying people as dead and they're taken off to mortuaries, put in their coffins and then they revive. So um, I, I just think that this sort of let's let's accept that nobody ever comes back from the dead is not something that I accept at all. I, I think perhaps it would be it's not necessary to 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 wave words like miracle in front of it. I think if perhaps. Um, if, if, if Ben and I agreed that we neither of us believed in miracles at all, then you might start thinking, and, and possibly, thank goodness, let's suppose that neither of us believed in God. You and me, Ben, let's take on the rest. Neither of us believe in God. Neither of us believe in miracles. Now, is it impossible that a man who was crucified could be put in a tomb and four hours later, surrounded by Aloes, fantastically good for um, reducing uh, bruises and things, should not recover. How about that? Well, so if you look at the premise three, so I say 
very uh, or Dr. Uh, Ahmed uh, says uh, we've never observed and verified cases of bodily reanimation after three days. We don't need and to have so, it after three days. Three, but the, the he's problem. yeah, but so he's he's the point that he's making is that our uniform experience is that dead people when they actually are dead, and so if we we all agree that that something is actually dead, they stay dead. But then we're oh, contrasting no, that no, with... You see, you're making a very big mistake there. We, if we agreed that, then by definition, Jesus couldn't possibly have risen from the dead, and therefore the argument didn't even, doesn't even begin. That's not what we mean by dead. What That's we mean by dead, and well, what we mean so, by dead is when there's no observation of any vital processes. Okay, so let Ben respond, and then I want to bring yeah. in David and make sure he has time for his questions. Um, so I take it that the theology surrounding the resurrection hypothesis is that Jesus died in a literal sense. And this is because his resurrection is meant to signify his conquering of death. And however you want to cash that out in theological terms. And what is supposed to um, authorize the divinity of Jesus here is that in our uniform experience, people who actually die stay dead, with the exception of Jesus, Jesus, or, or and any miracles that Jesus works. It's because he is the man, the dead, the man that actually died and didn't stay dead. That's what justifies um, the divinity and authority of Jesus as a figure. Um, and so I had taken that for granted. All of my um, arguments tonight suppose that that's the theological framework that we're working in. And so Dr. Ahmed's third premise is going to say, um, basically, what uh, make a claim within that theological framework of, we have uniform experience, people of people actually dying and staying dead. We've just, we, so that we have a uniform experience of that. And that that's what makes Jesus, the events surrounding Jesus's life so extraordinary and so important and so worthy of our attention is because what we would expect to happen is not what happened. And that that is an expression of God's divine power. Awesome. So, so uh, David, you can come in after that. We have about three audience questions. So, sorry, but it's probably going to be about two hours for this show, but um, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, David, come in with your questions. Are you enjoying? Yeah, I want to be. Hey, I really want to be respectful of their time. So, um, I appreciate both of you guys coming on. And I did have some questions, Ben. I think you answered some of it. And I really appreciate kind of displaying as a philosopher. We're both. And that all three of us, me, you, and uh, Dale are <laughs> philosophy you guys. So uh, I appreciate your, you know, your candor, especially when you're talking about, you know, there is weaknesses to these philosophical systems and these methodological systems. And everyone will uh, object to everything. There's, I know. You know there's yeah. always objections. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, we can't. I, I'm. I I've been trying to think about how to phrase this because. I know that that you probably don't do this, but I would like you to speak on it a little bit, and especially when it comes to the 
me- methodology of me- methodological naturalism that kind of assumes that there are no, no supernatural or divine causes or influences in the world. Do you think, I mean, which we know that that metaphysical, that's a metaphysical claim that can't be empirically <laughs> tested, right? So do you think that by ruling out the possibility of the supernatural divine causes or influences, which I don't think you did this why where I think you kind of answered it in a way, but I want a more direct um, answer yeah. here um, by ruling out the possibility of uh, the supernatural divine causes or influences. Uh, could you, could it be, um, could that make it? So it kind of denies like certain types of evidence or data that could shed light on a certain phenomena. Do you think it, it's limited in that degree? Uh, it could be. So it depends on how dogmatically someone wanted to hold on to something like a methodological naturalism. So on my view, methodological naturalism is provisional. So it is not something that rules something out indefinitely. Again, uh, I don't think it's a silver bullet, um, towards supernatural explanations. However, I think it is justified in the sense that we should prefer naturalistic explanations to supernatural explanations, and that this rule justifies us looking for uh, natural explanations and only resorting to supernatural explanations as a last resort. Um, So again, it's provisional. Like I said, so we could have gone into the history and found an event like Hume's Eight Days of Darkness. And so I think that would be a huge blow um, to something like a metaphysical, uh, a methodological naturalism. And so I've distinguished between metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism because metaphysical naturalism is the one that rules out miracles. That's the one that's incompatible with supernatural causes. The methodological naturalism is a rule rather than a metaphysical proposition. Right. So, saying that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and this is what I, this is, this, I mean, you're, you're getting right to the good stuff here. You're getting right to the, <laughs> but, uh, it, but it, don't you think that's kind of unfair? Cause like, um, metaphysical naturalism, I mean, it can't account for certain aspects of reality. So, I mean, with that being able, with that being present, I mean, shouldn't we not just put naturalism first at that at that point? Shouldn't we? Why why prefer that? Even if the uh, metaphysical naturalism can explain uh, those certain aspects of reality that require a non naturalistic explanation. Well, so we would also from your opinion. Yeah. So what you're talking about is um, on the total evidence. So it's you know we're right now isolating certain events of history. But I think what you want to say is like, look, metaphysical naturalism on a broad, if we look at the total evidence, broader picture, you know, we might need non-natural or supernatural causes to come in and explain certain facts on our total evidence. And so I want to say that that move is is open. This is why my methodological naturalism is provisional, um, because I don't want to rule out supernatural explanations in science generally, whether it be the history or the natural sciences if positing a supernatural cause is going to make the world more intelligible, it should be part of science, just like an electron or a black hole. The fact that it's unobservable shouldn't count again. You know, we can't observe black holes and we can't observe electrons directly, um, but they make the world more intelligible in some way. And so um, I, this is again where I part ways with a lot of my atheist peers in that, you know, they want to say that something like intelligent design 
is not credible because it's not scientific. I don't think the question is whether or not it should be called science. I think the question it should be rather, is it a good explanation? Can it be a potential explanation? And is there a good reason to think that it's a, the actual explanation? And if it is, whether or not we want to call that science or not is a dispute over a word. Um, <laughs> if, if it can, if it fit, if it's a, if it's a tool in our explanatory toolbox that makes the world more intelligible, we should be open to it. Right on, right on. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Thank, thanks so much for that, David. Ted. Oh, you, okay. You have to say quickly about that. Yeah, Go ahead. I, I just I just want to pursue this. I, I, I'm sort of it's been going over in my mind listening to these rather complicated um, uh, philosophical ideas, and that is that if I was an atheist and I didn't believe in miracles or the supernatural at all, I could still believe that a bloke who was killed on the cross could have recovered. Yes. Do you reckon that? Yes. So, so I would agree. So I think there's uh, that, well, that is think, perfectly think... possible physiologically for a Jesus to have those events to have happened and for him to have survived. I, I suspect then that we're, we're sort of heading towards the same direction. I'm a scientist. I'm a complete rationalist. But my interpretation of the supernatural aspect of things is less to do with... Um, bolts from the blue and more to do with the effect that they subsequently had on the observers and i think um so so i'd in some ways i'd, I'd be quite happy to say i don't think um that there was there was anything uh medically unassailable about the resurrection the resurrection as i say the resurrection is is in the message of the gospel and the promulgation of this idea it's not in what dear old Pope Benedict called the resuscitation of a corpse, which he thought was barely worth mentioning. And not necessarily. That's not the supernatural aspect of the resurrection. Do you reckon? Gotcha. Well, so I think it is. So I think so if so how I've under, um, understood the, the Christian theology and the suppositions I've made is that there is a violation of the laws of nature by a particular will of a deity. And so that's where my resurrection hypothesis is. God willed Jesus back to life three days after his crucifixion. Yeah. Jesus was dead. He would have remained dead if the laws of nature were to take their natural course. But because God intervened and um, suspended the laws of nature, as it were, to bring Jesus back to life and that that's the mark of divinity. That's what, that's the, the foundation of the Christian religion um, that without that foundational piece, um, I believe you might, Christian. You might pushing, yeah. I, I think uh, you might be pushing um, Catholic theology into a corner where it, it doesn't actually belong. Perhaps. Um, Maybe I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm not familiar enough. I think perhaps that anything could be a miracle um, pr looking at its subsequent effects rather than the actual details, the physiological details of what actually happened. All right. um, I'm, I'm a little out of my depth here. We're going, what well, <laughs> my, 
My sister's going to be watching this and she's got a, a doctorate in theology from the Lateran University in Rome. It's going to be stomping on me if I get it all wrong. I, look, I'm trying to avoid the wrath of, uh, you know, the historians, the history for atheists type thing. So I, I totally know what you mean. Like, I want to kind of tread carefully on the claims that I endorse. <laughs> well, well, quite. Of course, the thing is that you atheists, you can all, you can all have your own ideas and, and all argue with each other. But uh, we Catholics try and try and um, and profess one faith. Um, yeah. is, is what we say every Sunday. Anyway. All right. Cool. So I'm going to uh, question for both of you, but I'll start with Hugh, and I'm reducing it down to two just so we'll we'll fit. But this one's from Justin Schieber. Uh, so doesn't the die for a lie argument assume that the story spread by way of deception on the part of those who are in a position to know what really happened? Why assume deception rather than error? So you know, on this prior probability question, it do we don't have to assume the falsehood means that they lied. Um, what's your take starting with Hugh and then over to Ben? Uh, those who were in a position to know what really happened, um, I don't think they did know what really happened. I mean, Jesus, they certainly saw Jesus dying, and I think that they saw him alive again. I don't think they had any idea what happened in between. That was the whole point. Um, so been uh, they, 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 they put their own interpretation on it, which may well have been that uh, there, was a, there was a divine miracle. On the other hand, they'd seen people coming back to life before. Um, so, yes, I mean, they, they, they continued on their way following what they thought was true. I don't think they did die for a lie. I, I, okay. I've got a little bit lost there. No problem. I'll pass it over to Ben. Okay. <laughs> so I think, so I am not one who sympathize with the view that the Christian religion is founded on a deception. So I think that it is much more charitable and also much more probable that it was some sort of error that they either certain eyewitnesses were either mistaken or in error about Jesus having died or they were mistaken or in error about having seen Jesus after he died. There was a mistake somewhere. Now, if you were to ask me where exactly is the mistake, I don't know. I think those details are lost to history. Gotcha. All right, cool. So last question, and then we can close uh, from Wicked Felina. So this one, I'll start with Ben. It's talking about hallucinations. You guys kind of went back and forth a little bit on hallucinations. But look, these are things that happen subjectively to one person. So if we accept the fact of group hallucinations, what do you guys make of, of that in light of hallucinations? Yeah, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, I, I think um, Wicked Felina needs to explore the, the concept of the mass hallucination uh, rather more carefully. It may well be that one person hallucinates one particular thing, but they are sufficiently persuasive so that other people think they are also seeing the same thing. And uh, indeed, or even um, uh, experiencing the same phenomena. Uh, for a, a little while ago, well, there have been various uh, things that have happened in schools where uh, children have started fainting and being sick. And all the other children also faint and are sick. And the fact is that they weren't, um, they weren't in their minds, perhaps, they weren't experiencing exactly the same as what the first person was experiencing. Um, but they were at least sympathizing sufficiently to join in with the 
with the um, with the observation, uh, with the with the with the experience of it, if not the precise observation. And I would perhaps go to things like the um, experience of people at Fatima, where you had thousands of people who all observed something that didn't happen. Well, when you actually pin it down to who actually thought they saw something and whether what the other people thought was exactly the same as those people told them, it turns out that they're all a bit hazy of exactly what happened. Uh, this is the one, I don't know if Ben knows about this, there was a, an apparition of the Virgin Mary at Fatima in Portugal, I think, and uh, at one point the sun uh, seemed to dance in the sky and all the reports of the sun dancing in the sky are slightly different as to how exactly it did it and what direction it was going in and how widely it spun and all the rest of it. And of course, there are no astronomical reports from observatories as close as five or 10 miles away from Fatima that saw any such thing. So yes, there are such things as mass hallucination. And although everybody may not see exactly the same thing, they all say afterwards that they'd experienced exactly the same thing. That's my take. So um, the things that I, what I would want to say, and so usually this objection is raised in the context um, of Paul, uh, Paul's letters. And so saying that there's, you know, 500 people that had witnessed, but um, I'm not so sure that that's credible. Um, and the claim that Paul saw a physically resurrected Jesus is not a fact generally accepted by scholars, as far as I know. Um, now, something about group hallucinations. Um, in the ancient world, it was not at all uncommon for um, subjective first-person private dreams or visions to be rewritten as objective, publicly viewable events or group visions and dreams. Um, this is especially the case, as far as I'm aware, if there's a reason to lend credence to these visions. So um, one of the examples is the conversion of Constantine at the Battle of Milvillian Bridge. Um, and so uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, I think it's like Lactantidius or something. Um, records a private dream that Constantine has. Um, and so it's rewritten like 20 years later as um, a vision that his entire army had. And so that this is just a writing uh, device that's used in this time period of taking subjective visions, hallucinations, dreams, or whatever, and write, rewriting them as objective, third-person, publicly available visions that many people had. And so that could very well be the case in this situation. Again, I don't know. I think that the actual explanation is more likely than not lost to history. And I, I have to say that although I think mass hallucinations do happen, I don't think it's entirely relevant at all in this particular case. I don't think hallucinations can account for the start of Christianity. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, that's right, it for, for the questions. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let each of the people make a kind of a quick closing statement. So, yeah, let's uh, start with uh, Ben this time. We'll go in this order. Shameless plugs. Come on, yeah. do it. Go on with it. <laughs> um, so, 
for those who are not familiar with our work, um, Philosophy of uh, Relay Theology, a Philosophy of Religion podcast. Um, look us up wherever you like to look at, listen to podcasts, look us up on YouTube. Um, we have Facebook, we have a Twitter, um, and we're always trying to post useful tools for people to help in their Philosophy of Religion journey for both theists and atheists. We want people to really immerse themselves in the philosophy of religion and not really focus on scoring debate points or, you know, uh, rooting for your camp, but to really help people think deeply about questions that we find not only interesting, but really, really important. And so um, I, I think I'll just leave it there. Awesome. All right, cool. And Hugh, uh, make your make your closing statement or, and make any shameless plugs you'd like to do. I don't have any shameless plugs, except that if anyone would like to find MedievalShroud.com on the internet, they can read lots of fascinating things about the Shroud of Turin, none of which has anything whatever to do with the resurrection, owing to it being a medieval creation. Um, and I, I, I think that um, we, 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 very, we got quite close together, Ben and I, in the idea that even if, uh, if I was an atheist, if I was an atheist, I could still think that uh, a crucified man might reappear a few days later. And I think upon that rather weak foundation, I will build my church. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thank you again. Uh, I do want to say thank you again, Hugh Ferry, for agreeing to have this. It was an honor yeah. to be able to sit down and have a discussion with you. Well, I have to say I do sympathize with you because normally there's four of them and one of me. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. So, so David and Tyler, do, do you guys have any closing statements you want for the audience or announcements? Yeah. Faith and Alter? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I just thank uh, our guests, you know, um, you know, I love having Ben on. Um, ben always brings uh, really well thought out arguments and it was an honor to meet you, Hugh. Um, um, you know, uh, we love our UK brethren too. So, <laughs> uh, Tyler, I'll pass it to you, brother. Yeah, I just so these guys are much more philosophically minded than I am. Uh, I'm more practical. And so I would like to close by reading uh, a passage of scripture just for our Christian audience and our atheistic audience as well. Um, th what these guys have been discussing today, I think it is the absolute staple of Christianity, the resurrection from the dead. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did not. And I think it's a topic that whether we can you know battle about secondary tertiary issues the this is one of those primary issues that i believe either makes or breaks christianity and so i just want to read something from paul real quick um not to be disrespectful or anything like that to to ben or any of our atheistic friends but but to encourage them really dive into the study and if ben you you've got your you know your uh channel on youtube go there get the side uh, of the philosophy because i think it all plays a bigger role and in a, a bigger part in the entire argument than than not and so it's, get all sides of this but paul says this in first corinthians 15 12 now if christ is being preached as raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised then our preaching is futile and your faith is empty also, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead, when in reality he did not raise him. 
if indeed the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. And again, so I, so I, I say that to encourage everyone, really dive into this topic because we all have something to do with this statement, whether it's true, whether it's false. And I'll end there. Awesome. Yeah, on my end, I just want to say thank you to everyone, especially Hugh and Ben, for a great debate and a great discussion. Um, it was awesome seeing Hugh in the the pro, I don't want to say pro-Christian, because you are Christian even as a dread skeptic, but not on the skeptic side for once. It was a change of pace, and, and Ben was a great interlocutor on that part. So thank you, guys, and I hope you, you guys enjoyed uh, your time on the debate as well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was great. Awesome. All right, guys, have a, a great week. And I guess we'll go to the outro. Do you want me to play that, David? Or